I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated the to thinking biblically about everything. Changed my life, like literally changed my life in a bunch of different ways. Um, I grew up not really having a lot of wisdom, like the rest of you. <laughs> um, but it was it was the first book of the Bible I started to read was the Book of Proverbs, and it really transformed my life. It changed the way I viewed myself, the way I looked at the world, the way I evaluated situations, the ability to have clarity, clarity. Uh, sometimes is so valuable when you're going through hard times, just getting an understanding of what's going on. I think, though, that the book of Proverbs might be the least applied book of the Bible that has maybe the most application in it. And so I'm happy to do a tour through Proverbs 27 today as we take a pause on the Mark series just for one week, um, because we make decisions every day, and these decisions impact our lives and the lives of people around us. And a lot of the decisions and the habits we have right now, they're like little snowballs that we're rolling down the hill every day. And they, they gather snow. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they have a much large, larger impact down the road than we perceive as we're starting these habits and these behaviors and the way we do things. So maybe it's time to restore your focus on the book of Proverbs a little bit. And this will be like a, a teaser for you to do that. Proverbs, I think, should be kind of the soundtrack of our lives. It should be sort of in the background, helping us be informed to make thoughtful choices and decisions. Um, Whenever we make decisions, whenever we need clarity in tough situations, or whenever our natural foolishness threatens us, which for me is every five minutes, uh, we, we often have the book of Proverbs to sort of correct our path. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom here. So let's dig in. We're going to go verse by verse through Proverbs chapter 27, starting here in verse one. It says, do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring. Don't boast about tomorrow. Why? Because you could be wrong. Pretty simple wisdom, right? It's pretty basic stuff. Um, I think that this this relates, though, to the book of James. James puts it this way um, in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, gives us more detail. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, here's what you should say instead, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Now, sometimes people actually get ahead in business or get ahead in different spheres of life by boasting about tomorrow. They sell themselves as like having sort of this great agenda and plan that they're going to accomplish Uh, But the wisdom of Proverbs is saying that this is not a good thing to do. And it it may mean that somebody else gets gets noticed rather than you because you're not going to boast about tomorrow. Now, you can say, here's my agenda, here's my plan. I've got it all figured out to the best of my ability. But you have to recognize that you don't know if that's actually going to work. You don't know for sure what is going to happen tomorrow. And there's wisdom in just realizing that. If you think your plans are foolproof, there's always a fool you know, that can ruin those plans. It can always happen. <clears throat> so it strikes me, though, as I think about this idea of not boasting about tomorrow, even though making plans is good, but not boasting about it, right? It strikes me how much of modern prosperity preaching does this, does this very thing. The, the guy in the pulpit, he's boasting about what's going to happen to you tomorrow, about all the doors that will open and all the blessings that will come and all the prosperity that's coming your way, all the, the good things that are about to unfold. And it's, notice how it's always about to happen. They're not usually talking about how great the year just was. They're always about how great the next year is going to be. And the next year, they're like, how great next year is going to be? How come they aren't just like telling everybody, hey, you're already riding high. Remember, I told you last year was going to be great. And it was. 
It's just going to keep going. Instead, it's always like this boasting about tomorrow kind of thing. I think that there's something unwise about that. Um, <clears throat> so the application of this first verse, don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day will bring, is that you're, you're ready for problems in your life because if you think all your plans will work perfectly, you don't think about contingency plans. You don't worry about, okay, and what if this, this school plan doesn't work out? And what if this business opportunity doesn't work out? What, what if this thing fails in some respect? What am I going to do? Also, you don't look like a fool because it will work for a while if you kind of like oversell yourself and oversell your agendas and your plans. People will at first be really impressed by you. Wow, man with the plan, you know, kind of a person. But those who know you well will eventually start discounting everything you say. And I've seen this happen. Maybe you have too. The person who boasts about tomorrow ends up being the person people don't trust about tomorrow because they aren't realistic about their expectations. So they're exciting to people that don't know them well. But the people that know them well tend to value their promises sort of lowly. And so there's some wisdom there. <clears throat> Verse 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. In other words, it's better to speak highly of somebody else than it is to speak highly of yourself. Um, now, ap- applying this into your life, which it, it could apply very constantly, um, it requires a lot of self-awareness. Like I have to actually really honestly look at my own self and think about the things I say, the patterns of speech in my life. Am I more likely to compliment others or to compliment myself? Am I more likely to speak highly of what someone else is doing or to speak highly of my own my own thing, myself? We're all naturally interested in whatever we're doing. But how likely am I to be that kind of loving person that, that lifts up others? That's the idea. It's better to speak highly of somebody else than yourself. Um, this, it, it's, you, you won't notice you're doing this wrong unless you have that real sober evaluation of your own speech. And you might be like, well, what's the big deal here? Well, the thing is, Proverbs, not every proverb is about a giant, big, huge deal in your life. It's often about wisdom. It's just like, this is just wisdom. It's wisdom. Now, it's divine wisdom. It's not just wisdom that gets you ahead in life. It's not just about getting ahead. Sometimes it's just about walking in the fear of the Lord. And this idea of speaking highly of others and not of yourself um, is a big deal here. Now, verse 1 and 2, I think, are connected. A lot of the book of Proverbs is these pithy statements, like chapters 10 through chapter 29 or something, are like pithy sort of statements, like one-liners that you can pull apart and you can try to apply to your life. But these two verses, I think, go together. Um, sometimes they do. Sometimes it's a cluster of verses. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. I don't want to force it. Um, it's not usually that hard to notice when they go together. But here I see in verse one, don't boast about what you will do. And then in verse two, don't boast about what you have done. Instead, boast about what other people have done. And that's like a good rule of life. And imagine being surrounded with a bunch of people that do this. That'd be like a nice place to be. <laughs> it's like a nice group of people to be around. This is just wisdom that gives you healthy relationships and creates a positive community. Verse three, a stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Now, those familiar with manual labor will understand a stone is heavy, sand is weighty. There's certain jobs where you're like, oh man, you know, moving sandbags, large amounts of sandbags is like, that's a lot of work. Moving stones, that's, that's a lot of heavy labor. So that's the picture you should have in your head. But the application is that the fool's provocation is heavier than both. 
Now, it's not the fool. The fool's not heavy. Now, that may be true as well. I don't know. It's possible, maybe not. But the provocation of the fool, or another word to put there is the word wrath. That's heavy. That's, it's a weight. It's a burden the fool puts on other people. Now, what on earth is this talking about? How is the fool giving me a burden? I think what happens, and I'm going to give you my impression as I read this proverb, is that um, when, you, when you irritate a godly person, they don't burden you the way the fool does. But you trigger the fool and they freak out on you. And they either, with their slow, malicious intent, slowly heap burdens upon you or they overreact and it's just like over the top, freaking out. Now they're angry, they're wrathful to the point where you're being burdened by their overreaction. This is often how fools will control the people around them. They'll control them by flipping out. And then everyone's like, look, I won't even argue with you because I, I think that the burden of your wrath is worse than lugging heavy sand and stones. Okay, I don't want to deal with it. And that's what I think we're getting out of this. A bad temper here, here's an application. A bad temper is a burden that we put on everyone in our lives. And that's a sobering perspective to have. To say, oh, I'm impatient, I have a bad temper, I, I just, I, yeah, sometimes I go off on people. Maybe we don't realize the burden we're dumping upon everyone in our life when we have that kind of temper. And that's a pretty heavy thing to think about. I mean, that pun intended. Um, now, the fool often thinks that they're correct about whatever they're wrong about. And because they're so burdensome, nobody wants to argue with them about it. You know people like this in your life probably, right? Who you're like, even when they're wrong, I don't even argue with them about it because it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. So this ends up trapping the fool. They think that they're winning an argument, but all they're doing is cutting off all the sources of correction in their life because of the burdens they create. Verse 4 it says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Now, the, the last verse spoke of wrath, so there may be some connection here between the two verses, um, the provocation of the fool. But So wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? The idea is that jealousy is like next level. Jealousy is like an even bigger, you know, harder issue than these other things. Jealousy is worse even than wrath and anger. What's the wisdom I can learn from verse 4? It's Watch out for jealousy. It's a, it's a simple thing. It's just watch out for jealousy. If you're doing things that provoke jealousy, you are in danger. And this doesn't mean the other person's jealousy is justified or not. It's just like a life wisdom thing. If you realize like that's going to provoke jealousy and so-and-so, that's something to watch out for, to be aware of, to, even just to protect yourself. And this doesn't necessarily say that the jealousy is wrong or that the jealousy is right. There's actually a proverb that talks about uh, the danger of committing adultery with a married woman. One of the dangers is the wrath of her husband. And they're like, he, when he gets you, he's not going to have mercy on you. Like, don't be looking for mercy from that guy. And so there's like just a wisdom in this. It's the recklessness, the danger that one brings upon themselves when they provoke that kind of jealousy. But I think there's an application to God in this because God is a jealous God. Now, when we say that, the world often misunderstands because they're used to the human emotion of jealousy, which is more often than not unjustified. Most of the time when people are jealous or envious, it's not a justified thing. But there is such a thing as just jealousy, right? Like if, if, if I go out with my wife and she starts flirting with somebody else and I feel jealous, that's actually an appropriate feeling. Now, I can 
handle it sinfully or I can handle it righteously. That's it. Now, now I have that dilemma. But that's an appropriate kind of jealousy because of the commitment we have to one another. And God is jealous in the sense that we do belong to him. We're his creation. He's made us. He's made us for himself. It's a good thing. It's because of his love and compassion and connection to us that he has a proper kind of jealousy because he's worthy. So what I would say there is that we're, we're realizing the weight of judgment that comes upon people who turn their back on God and love other things in his place in the sense of idolatry, loving the things of this world. Verse 5, it says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. This is one of those Proverbs that sticks in my mind a lot. I think about this one a lot for some reason. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Open rebuke in Scripture is generally a bad thing. Um, this is, this is, I think we have to understand this context to understand this verse. This isn't saying open rebuke is good, right? Now, there are those who think it's their, it's their primary calling in life to rebuke other people. And I want to openly rebuke you. <laughs> um, actually, this would not be open rebuke because I'm not calling you out by name. And that's the nature of open rebuke. I'm putting a person up in front of a group of people to, to point out their error in front of those other people. That's open rebuke. I think, that, I think that that's what is meant by the idea. In Matthew 15, we're told that when, when our brother sins against us, we should take him aside, just us and that one person, and have a private convo. So that when people offend you, the best way to try to seek to initially restore that relationship is a one-on-one thing, just the two of you. You don't not tell everybody else, just the two of you. If they won't hear you, then you can bring other people, that kind of thing. Um, so Matthew 15 t- speaks about this being um, private rebuke. Galatians 6, it tells us when someone is caught up in sin and error that our job as Christians is to go to them and seek to restore them gently. So there's like a sense of gentleness that's meant when I'm confronting someone in error, I want to try to have a gentleness in that. Now, there seems to be a big exception to the rule, and that is when people are publicly proclaiming error, they ought to be publicly refuted or rebuked. So public teaching requires open rebuke. I think that that is consistent. Jesus does this over and over. But private issues, one-on-one sin issues, doesn't require open rebuke. I don't need to put you on blast. I need to go to you privately. That's the idea. Okay, so what's the point then? If open rebuke is generally seen as a bad thing, but it's better than hidden love, the idea is that hidden love is even worse than open rebuke. Oftentimes we don't want to open rebuke because partially we're just embarrassed too. Oh, I don't want to tell him he's wrong. Especially in our culture, we're like, I don't want to tell people they're wrong. I mean, I'll tell everybody about them, but I don't want to tell them, you know? Um, and that's kind of where we're at because we don't want the confrontation of it. <clears throat> but there's another even worse situation, which is when we hide love, our compassion for others, because we feel it's awkward, we feel uncomfortable, we feel insecure that by being really loving and gracious to others, they, might, they may not reciprocate. And so we're, you know, maybe it's a macho related thing. Um, this is, this is not a healthy situation. There's nothing manly about being cold and distant from people. There's n- nothing manly about this. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for your family or your friends. Now, I don't think this proverb is giving you an excuse to go and tell your crush how much you're crushing on them. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. And uh, often we re- when we see love, we think, oh, passion. But the scripture often is talking about a more wholesome kind of love, the same kind of love a brother and sister can have. And so I'm thinking more along those lines. 
Um, yeah, it's a bad situation when we're worried about being macho or awkward or in, we're insecure, so we're not sharing love. And we see this with like Paul in the epistles. He writes such com- so much compassion into his epistles when he says things like Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the, aff- uh, for, excuse me, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, I just want us to notice like, that's like a really... He's emoting at them, you know? He's being mushy in his letter to them in Philippians. And he's just like, man, I yearn for you guys with the affection of Christ Jesus. But that's exactly what he was supposed to do, inspired by the Holy Spirit to just like emote at them. There's something wonderful about being able to tell people, not in weird ways, but in genuine ways. I love you. I, I so appreciate you. You know that? And we, we need that. We do need that. And so share it. Don't hide that love. Share it. Be open about your love for other people. When I was doing youth ministry, I would tell the students, don't be embarrassed to tell your, uh, tell your parents you love them on the, when you're on the phone. You know, your mom's like, I love you. And you're like, yeah. And you hang up because your, your friends are over here and you're paranoid. And I gave them a good comeback line. I said, you know, just, just tell your mom. Yeah, I love you too, mom. And when your friends laugh, look, oh, you love your mom. Just look at them and be like, you don't love your mom? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Um, but I think the next verse goes with this. I think these, this is another pair of verses. Verse six, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I think that loving rebuke can be seen as the wounds of a friend. And that there are times where you, you call somebody out and how do you know, when is, when is open rebuke the, the proper and appropriate move? I think when it's fueled by love. When you're like, man, I'm not loving you if I don't call you out. That's a great time to, to have that open rebuke if that's what needs to happen. Is when you say, if I don't do this, I'm not even loving you. And you have to apply this. You're like, well, hey, tell me exactly when to apply this. And I'm like, look, this is the book of wisdom. You store up this wisdom and you seek to figure out where it applies in your life. And it is... It applies in a variety of situations, but um, may the Lord bring it to your mind. There are times when open rebukes required, and it's when uh, to fail to do so is to fail to love people. Loving rebuke is the wounds of a friend. On the other hand, <clears throat> profuse are the kisses of an enemy, it says. That's the enemy who kisses you. They compliment you. They flatter you. They're not, we're not talking about like just literal kisses. This is speaking metaphorically about them encouraging you no matter what. Oh, you're doing great. You're a superstar. And that kind of thing, even though it's just simply not true. Some people, I think that they misunderstand this reality that um, the friend who calls you out is a good friend. The friend who tells you you've got issues is a good friend. And they have this attitude towards the church. And the church keeps calling them out because they keep rebelling against Christ in their life. And so they decide the church is judgmental. I'm not, now, there are, sure, there's judgmental churches, but you know what? There's also, there's also churches that are offering the faithful wounds of a friend where someone, someone's just living in a lot of compromise, a lot of issues, and so their friends who love them, who are Christians, are like, hey, man, you got to come out of that. Hey, man, you got to deal with that issue. And so they go to the world because the world never offers this correction. That's the kisses of the enemy. And so there are some that find acceptance in the world, but what's being accepted is the things that destroy them. And so it can be a real hurtful thing. Some people leave the church to find the kisses of the world and get a kind of affirmation that's not 
the, the wounds of a friend. It's the kisses of the enemy. It's the profuse kisses of the enemy. That word profuse, it means excessive. Excessive. You're just being like way too affirming. That's the idea. And the world does this. The enemy does this. They're just way too affirming. Salesmen do this. Right? They affirm everything about you. Oh man, I love your... I love your hair, your clothes, your shoes. Your laugh is great. You're such a smart person. Want to buy this? And this is, this is something, you know, it's a sales tactic, you know, to try to like overly emphasize positive things about people. Um, that word profuse could also be translated deceitful. That's excessive. In other words, it's, it's, it's tricksy. It's a tricksy hobbit maneuver is what it is. And they're being deceitful, actually. So it's the excessive affirmations that reveal to us the red flag that should go up that someone's trying to mess with me right now. You know, you have in, those, in your life those people who tell it to you like it is, but they care about you. They're wounds, but they're the wounds of a friend. And you have those who affirm you no matter what. And I think who you go to says a lot about who you are. It says a lot about your character. Do I hide from the people who will tell it to me like it is and I just start stockpiling those who will just affirm me no matter what? That's a dangerous thing. And that's what this proverb, I think, is giving us. Now, I think the gospel gives us um, a really good application of this verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of of an enemy. Uh, Now, some people say it's Jesus' wounds. His wounds are faithful, right? The wounds of a friend. And I think that's a really interesting application. But I, I tend to actually lean this way. I would say the offensive nature of saying you have to face the facts of your sin Those are the wounds of a friend, someone who's preaching the gospel who loves people and they tell them about their sin issues. Those those wounds, those are hurtful, but they heal. They're going to bring you to the gospel of Christ. That's the idea. In fact, it's love unhidden. That in itself is love unhidden. Preaching the gospel and sharing with people even though it may cause ruffling in the relationships. That's unhidden love. On the other hand, the world will simply affirm everyone straight to hell. Affirm them forever and ever and ever and ever. Affirm them, affirm them, affirm them. And it's just the profuse kisses of the world that never stop the affirming. So remember that in witnessing, that it's, it's love that compels us to preach about sin. It's not our hatred of people. Gosh, if you hate them, just leave them alone. You know, it's our love that compels us. Verse 7, <clears throat> it says, One who's full loathes honey, but to one who's hungry, every bitter, everything bitter is sweet. Boy, I really pondered on this one as I was prepping for tonight. I really pondered on this one. Um, here's a question for you. Okay, I, I think we all get the proverb, right? If you're, if you're full, you don't even want the sweet dessert like honey type thing. Oh, not. Like when the waiter, waiter comes, like, did you save room for dessert? I, like, I just want to save every waiter. I never save room for dessert. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not buying more food. <laughs> We're done. But, um, but yeah, you're like, no, I'm just so stuffed. Even, even something sweet just sounds terrible to me. Oh, we get the idea. But if you're super hungry... Every bitter thing is sweet, uh, right? They say hunger is the best seasoning, right? So if you're a bad cook, just make people wait longer. And they'll like your food more. <laughs> but that's not the application of the proverb. Um, so which one's better though? Which one do you think this proverb is saying is better? Is it better to be full and loathe honey or better to be hungry and everything bitter is sweet? Um, that's kind of a challenge. I'm not really sure to say which one's better. I mean, it could simply be suggesting moderation, it could be suggesting moderation. Hey, your enjoyment increases when your use decreases. You're overindulging in the things that you think are fun. And they stop being fun. They just become obsessive addictions. 
I have to do this all the time. But the actual enjoyment of it's decreased. And there may be a sense of moderation there. We do live in a binge culture. We do. You know this. We live in a binge culture. And it may be that we need to back off some of those binge things so that we can enjoy them in moderation in their appropriate context. Uh, One commentator says this. He says, Poverty hath this advantage over plenty, that it disposes men to be thankful for the smallest blessings, though mixed with care and trouble, when the rich sort, if they be not very careful, are apt to be unsatisfied with, nay to nauseate their most delicious enjoyments, upon which they have long surfeited. Some King James commentary for you there, but basically saying, it's interesting that sometimes you, you will look at somebody who has less, and they're really grateful for what little they have, and someone who has much, and they're really not grateful at all. Something about lacking gives us an attitude of gratefulness. There's something there. Every bitter thing being sweet, though, I don't know if that's really a good thing. I don't know if I want every bitter thing to be sweet. Um, Maybe we do. I'm not really sure how to take that part of the proverb, if that's a positive or a negative thing. I'm not really entirely sure. Because I I think of um, young people who who have really bad family relationships, so they're starving for a loving, healthy relationship. And so they hook up with some abusive or basically some horrible match to be a boyfriend or girlfriend because every bitter thing is sweet. So even though this person is just as messed up as them and they both have an unhealthy relationship, they're getting this real sense, oh, it's so sweet, it's such a great relationship, but they don't know what a healthy relationship's like because they've never had one. Not with their parents, not with their siblings, not with this other person. And so I think that's not a healthy position to be in. We want to, so maybe a, a sense of moderation somewhere in the middle is the better place to be, possibly. But there may be a, a gospel application here, um, which is to say there's a sweet and a bitter side to the gospel. The bitter being, in my opinion here, the bitterness of realizing my sin. That's not, that's not fun. Okay? I'm broken. That's not exactly a fun experience. This sweetness of realizing the forgiveness, the grace, the salvation in Christ, the eternal life that I've been given, the hope, the relationship with God Almighty for all eternity. I mean, that's pretty sweet. So there's a real bitter and a real sweet side of these things. And my thought is that the self-satisfied people in this world, they, they are full up in the world, and so they reject even the sweetness of heaven, let alone the bitterness of the, of the sin. So they're too satisfied in themselves. However, the starving are, would be those people who, like Jesus said, are blessed are the poor in spirit or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they're just starving for the eternal things. They're starving for heaven. They're starving for God. And so they, to them, even hearing about their sin, that is even sweet. And, that, and, I, and as I say that, I think, man, that's totally my life, right? Like, I mean, I go, yes, Lord, when I... When I, when I see my sin reflected back at me, I'm grateful. I mean, I'm grateful that I, that I see, and, to, and this I think some people won't understand, to see my own brokenness or my own flaws shine back on me so that I can turn to the Lord in those things, receive forgiveness and have my life transformed. I'm, I'm grateful for that. So even the bitterness is sweet to, to the one who's starving for the Lord. All right, verse 8 says, Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. Like a bird that strays from his nest is a man who strays from his home. There is in us, I think, a lot of us, 
especially after we get married, maybe, maybe before we have kids, maybe after we have kids, we have this temptation to get out of Dodge. I just want to get out of this house. I just want to get away from these people. I just want to get, I feel trapped in this life and I just want to like escape this escapism thing. And I do not think this is terribly uncommon. I think a lot of people feel this way. I think it's a temptation that we get. My counsel is don't do it. Don't. Don't even take one step in the direction away from your home, away from your family, away from where God has you. It is like a, a bird that strays from its nest, which puts that bird in great danger and leaves the nest unprotected. It does both of those things. We can find escape on the outside by leaving the house and getting involved in things that they're not just things you do outside the home, but they're things to keep you from the home. You know, these are different kinds of things. These are things I'm doing in order to keep me out of my own house, away from my own family. That's really dangerous. That's really dangerous. Or we can do it even in our own house. We can find a place in our own house to kind of like nowadays put your headphones on, lock yourself onto a screen, and you're basically, you've escaped from your family. And that's not really healthy either. So I'd say don't take a single step away from your marriage, your kids, or your home in that respect. It's not good. It's not good. And um, there's another application that may be applying to my walk with God for... Um, my home is with God. My relationship is with God. And the, the place I belong is with the Lord at all, pla- at all times. And so guard yourself from the things that would pull you further from that relationship. You don't belong with the world. You belong at home, so to speak. So <clears throat> verse 9, uh, oil and perfume make the heart glad. And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Earnest counsel. That would be heartfelt or Heartfelt counsel is another way they could translate that earnest counsel, heartfelt counsel. Um, I think that this is a friend giving you advice that is genuine. It's, it's from their heart. Like, not that it's emotional. It's, there's like a sense of purity in it. They're telling you the truth without manipulation, and they don't really have an agenda because they're just your buddy, right? They're not trying to manipulate you to get you to do this and that for them, but they're just a friend. They're just giving you good counsel. It's good advice from someone who knows you and doesn't have an agenda beyond God's glory and your good. Man, that's, that's like the oil and perfume brings gladness to you. It's so good to have that kind of counsel. You need this counsel in your life. Like you really need friends. I need friends. Some of us are starving for friends, starving for friends. And you feel that need and you don't need a thousand friends, right? But you do need at least a few at least a couple, at least three or four who, who are like that, who can give you that kind of counsel and that kind of advice. Like it's really important in our lives. The book of Proverbs speaks about friendship a lot. In fact, um, the, uh, the book of Proverbs has the word friend 23 times and that's more than any other book of the Bible. More than any other book of the Bible. It's, it's in there quite a lot. I encourage you to pay attention to what Proverbs says about friendship. We're not very good at friendship nowadays. At least our culture, I mean, is not. Like we're not like equipped to be very good at it. Do you know that ancient philosophers, we, we read about these ancient philosophers, like Aristotle and all these guys, right? But they would literally spend hours upon hours upon hours philosophizing friendship. The philosophy of friendship, like they would study this topic and they thought it was really important. And I don't necessarily agree with a lot, what a lot of these guys might say about different topics, but I understand the emphasis on friendship. I think in the scripture it's there. Jesus says, he describes our relationship with him as a relationship of a friend. Right? I've called you my friends. 
There's something really, really important here. So it's like oil and perfume. It gladdens your heart or it's uplifting. It's uplifting and friendship is a big deal. If you look at Proverbs, it talks about us choosing our friends carefully. Let the righteous choose their friends wisely for the way the wicked can lead them astray, it tells us. So I want to be able to pick my friends, invest in those friendships. It doesn't happen on accident. It's an investment of time, energy, and be a loyal friend, be a good friend to that person. It's really good for you. Really good for you. Now, if you have a down heart, maybe you should get counsel from a friend. There's a good proverb for you. If you're feeling down, well, just like oil, perfume, it, it has this enlightening effect upon a person. Well, so friendship does the same thing. Good counsel. Verse 10 says, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who's near than a brother who's far away. I think the point of this proverb is be a loyal friend. Be a loyal friend. And then you'll receive the benefits of the loyalty of your friends. So we need friends and we need to be loyal to those friends. Friendship is a commitment. It's not just an expectation, but it is a sense of commitment. Like your friend is the one who will drop everything to help you out when you need it. That's, that's the idea. And so you need friends that are local. Like that's real practical advice. Better is the friend who's nearby than a brother far away. The issue here isn't that brothers are worse than friends. That's not the problem. That's not what, I don't think what the Proverbs is saying at all. Rather, the, the issue is if you have a brother who's far away, you're like, oh, my brother would do anything for me, but he's like 500 miles down the road. Well, then you need some nearby friends. You need some friends that near, near where you live. Invest in those friendships. Give some time to building friendships near where you live. They're really important. Simple wisdom. Uh, take it or leave it. I recommend taking it. The application is you need friends nearby and be loyal to them. And being loyal to them is the same. It's, it's the reverse of what you get at the end of this. Um, the day of your calamity, that's when they're loyal to you. Well, the first part said, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. That's when you're loyal to them. Help them when they're going through hard times. Draw nearer to the friend who's suffering so that when you are, they will be there for you. It's just good friendship, man. That's what we're talking about. Verse 11 says, be wise, my son, and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. Now, this is a very different feel, this verse. It's a father to a son. Be wise, my son. The father's reputation I get from this is connected to his kids. Right? Because he's going to answer those who reproach him. Did you see, I heard about your son. He did this. Uh, be wise, my son, that I might answer him who reproaches me. That's the idea. The, the parent's reputation is connected to their kids. Now, some people think it's connected to their financial success. Oh, my son has made a bunch of money. My daughter, she's very rich and wealthy. But that's actually not what this parent is asking for, is it? This parent's not saying, be rich, my son. Be successful in business. Rather, it's be wise. What is the desire of a godly parent? Is that their kids are wise. That they have wisdom. That's important. Be wise. Proverbs 3 reinforces this. It says this in verses 13 through 16. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand and in her left hand are riches and honor so that the comparison between wisdom and wealth is get wisdom guys, get wisdom. 
Wisdom will be the avenue through which you get all the other things you need in life, but you desperately need wisdom. It affects everything you are. But how often do we ask, is this wise? Is what I'm doing wise? But that's the point. That's the point tonight. It's to start reminding ourselves that we should be asking ourselves about all of our actions. Is this wise? Is there wisdom in this? Wisdom always involves a perspective of God in your life. Real wisdom, good wisdom is going to always involve, right? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So seeing it from God's angle, okay, get God in the picture as I evaluate the situation. And it will always involve a moral evaluation. We see this in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom isn't just how to get ahead. Wisdom is how to do the right thing, right? There's a right thing. There's a moral evaluation there. But wisdom is also going to be a pragmatic evaluation, which is to say you look at your life and you go, what will happen if I keep doing it this way? Just a simple pragmatic evaluation. God wants us to be wise, which also means, and I've shared this many times, but it means that I will not always be led of the Holy Spirit in every decision I make in life. For if I was, I would not need wisdom. Wisdom is a decision-making thing. It's a tool for making choices. It's a tool for evaluating scenarios. So the Lord may give you capacities for wisdom and ask and maybe you know even do that by the holy spirit but he's going to ask you to evaluate and make choices many times now the holy spirit may lead and guide you to specific actions i just think i need to be open to both of those and to walking in wisdom um, and making choices so god wants us to be wise and as i apply this in the big picture verse 11 be wise my son i think god wants us to be wise because it also impacts his reputation christians provide the reputation of Christianity. People more often base their understanding of Christianity or their their thoughts about it based upon Christians, not Christ. Now that may be a mistake, right? We should look at Christ. He is the ultimate Christian. But they will often base it off of you and me, which is too bad, I guess. But hopefully we're wise and then it gives an answer to those who want to reproach God. That's the idea. Verse 12, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Um, I remember reading this when I was a, a teen, first starting to read the Bible, and I remember seeing the word prudent and thinking, I have no idea what this word means. <laughs> what does prudent mean? And it's kind of a shocking commentary on our culture that we don't even have words like prudent in our vocabulary anymore. What word do we have for cautiously saying, no, I, I won't do that. I don't think I'll be doing that. We don't like, what do we, we call it? We call them a chicken, <laughs> coward, like wimp or something. Like, what do we call them? The word the Bible has is prudent. They see danger and they hide themselves. This is a, a wonderful trait. It's the opposite of YOLO, right? I don't know if YOLO is still in fat. It seems kind of old school to me. YOLO seems kind of, all those people tried that and died and now no one talks about it anymore. But, um, but it's kind of the opposite of that mentality. It's, it's, it's thinking about the, the consequences of your actions. Consequential thinking. Consequential thinking is, is something children don't do very well. Have you noticed this? They're really bad about thinking of the consequences of their actions or their behaviors. They just want what they want. But I've found um, that a lot of adults are this way as well. And the Bible calls them the simple in this proverb right here. Right? There's the prudent. They see danger. They can look ahead and they see the consequences of actions. So they go the other way. But the simple, I like it. It's fun. And they just kind of keep going. That's the simple. Now, in years of doing domestic violence counseling... I can say that one of the things that almost everybody in the program who was convicted of committing domestic violence, they almost all had serious problems with consequential thinking. 
That is, thinking about the eventual consequences of their current behaviors. They only thought about what it would do in the next day or two, or maybe the next week or two, but not certainly in the next 20, 30 years. That wasn't something that was on their mind. Consequential thinking is really a big deal. In marriage, in business, in life, what you have to do is look at your marriage and ask yourself, if I keep treating my marriage this way, what will it snowball into in the future? And if that scares you, you've got to change. And if you're like, dude, that's going to be awesome, then keep going, you know? Right? You think about this with business. If I keep treating my, my business or my education this way, what's it going to snowball to in the future? If I keep treating my physical body this way, what's it going to snowball into in the future? And this is where the prudent foresees the danger and they turn aside. They take a different path. Verse 13, take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for an adulteress. The, uh, the idea of a security or a surety is like our modern version of co-signing or putting your neck on the line for somebody else. That's the idea. Hey, man, I'll, I'll co-sign. Sure, I'll co-sign for that. That's the idea. Um, when, when, when this guy's thing he's doing goes wrong, they will come to me to fix it. That's the idea. Generally speaking, the Bible's like super against co-signing. Good advice for all of us to recognize. It's like really against co-signing. Um, co-signing loans, co-signing home ownership, things like this. It doesn't mean you can never, ever do it, but it's generally a bad idea. Generally, it's a bad idea, something you should not do. Now, why does it say take his garment and hold it in pledge when he puts up his security or cosign in a sense, the equivalent of cosigning, for a stranger or an adulteress? Well, these two groups of people, stranger is, these are people you don't really, really know. But I, I sort of know them. I think they seem like a good guy. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll put my neck on the line for you. And the Proverbs is like, you know, you might love them, but this may not be the right way to do it. That's kind of what it's saying. Or maybe it's an adulteress or the idea here is an immoral person. You know somebody with, has a reputation for immoral behavior and you're putting your, your financial future on the line for them. This is not wisdom. Don't do this. But I thought I was supposed to love people and help them. Yes, give them money, but don't co-sign. Do you see what co-signing? Co-signing is different. I'm on the hook for question mark debt in the future if this person doesn't do their part of the job. That's not something you want. It's not something you want. Take a man's garment. I think the idea is it's your garments. It doesn't mean taking all of the person's clothes off like they're naked. The idea is this is a personal thing. Everyone knows you because they know this garment's yours. And it's to help you realize that you are personally on the hook. So don't cosign. There's the wisdom. That will save you a great deal of pain and suffering. And if you've ever watched Judge Judy, you would realize that she wouldn't have a show if people would take the wisdom of Proverbs. Verse uh, 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. <laughs> people who are like not morning people are like, finally, <laughs> finally, people are going to get this. Um, yeah. <laughs> the application is simple and, and easy, but what's the overall lesson we're learning here? I think it's a case for empathy. I think it's a case for empathy. It's like to realize that all help isn't help. All kindness isn't kindness. And I've got to do like a survey of, of where someone's at before I seek to be a blessing to them. I have to do a little survey of where they're at before I seek to be a blessing. A lack of empathy can cause my kindness to fail and for it to actually be annoying. 
So there's just like a real good piece of wisdom there. Verse 15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. You can't, you can't restrain the wind. You can't hold back the wind. You ever try to just reach into a thing of oil and try to grab it? Yeah, it, it's not going to work. It's not going to work and you can't stop her. And that's why she's compared to continual dripping. That would be her complaining or her quarreling. Like she's just constantly starts fights all the time. That's that continual dripping. Now let me just rescue Proverbs from our modern mentality is that if, if you say anything about a woman, you're saying it about women, period. That's not the case. Okay, just like the, the Bible talks about a foolish man, that doesn't mean all men are that way. This doesn't mean all wives are this way either. And if any guy out there thinks all wives are this way, that's just because you're a jerk and you can't tell. <laughs> that's, the, that's the reality. I mean, that's just, sorry, that's the truth. You have these like jerk lenses, so you see every woman as insane. Anyhow, but there's a huge lesson to learn here, and it, and it does apply in marriage. And that is that there are some women who just constantly start fights in their marriage. They're like continual dripping. Those are, the, those are the fights. And the man trying to stop her from fighting, trying to figure out how he can fix things so she won't fight. It's like the guy going around his house and he plugs up one leak and it leaks over there and he plugs up another leak and now it leaks over there and it plugs up another leak. Why? Because it's a continual dripping on a rainy day. There is this massive store of water coming down. It's going to find a way in. The, the woman who is leaning towards quarreling and fighting, she will find something to be upset about. Because there's a massive store of quarreling inside of her. And it's going to find a way out. I think, I think that that's, that's the lesson right there. If you find yourself, and this applies to men too, obviously. If you find yourself always complaining, something's wrong with you. I don't know how to pull the covers off well enough to help people see this. Proverbs takes a lot of introspection. And to recognize, if I find myself always complaining, maybe I have like this sort of discontent inside of me and it's finding its way out in my life through leaky holes all the time. And that's, and, and I'm thinking if people would around me would just treat me better, then it would contain me. But it's not the case because no matter how well treated you are, there's going to be those kinds of things. So th that's an extreme situation. We're being given a, an extreme situation in Proverbs. And I don't want you to be paranoid. Maybe this is me. Maybe this is me. No, just, just seek wisdom from it. You know, if it applies to you, it should be obvious if it applies to you. Um, however, if you're surrounded by someone who's like this, who's always quarreling and complaining and stuff, I think that this proverb gives you a freedom to realize it's not your fault. Right? You couldn't stop him if you tried. Okay? Just go about your business. Be godly. Be loving. But don't blame yourself for someone else's issues. Verse 17 says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Um... Did I skip something? 16, 16 was to, to restrain her with the, uh, is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. So verse 17 is where we are now. Did I say, did I not say that? Someone's confused. It's probably me. I apologize. Verse 17, iron sharpens iron. <clears throat> one man sharpens another. Um, we, we get this one mentioned all the time. The idea is that you've just got like two people, two people, and they sharpen each other. You know, like the way iron sharpens iron, you use a sharpening stone or use a sharpening uh, rod on a knife or something like that. And this means that there is some element of pushback in relationship that's healthy and good. 
it keeps us from getting weird, I think, sometimes. But it can also make us like quicker in wit. It can improve us. It's one of the benefits of friendships and relationships where you kind of don't perfectly agree on everything, but it, it like sharpens you. And so we find even some abrasion in relationships that can be a healthy thing. Um, iron sharpens iron. It's good to be around other people. Verse 18, whoever tends a, f- uh, a fig tree will eat its fruit and he who guards his master will be honored. I think uh, the, the op- application seems pretty obvious. It's like you're tending a fig tree, you're eating its fruit, you guard your master, you'll be honored. Master here, it, it refers to anybody who's in a superior position to you. Uh, whether it was a king or a boss or a, a, a teacher, uh, just someone in a superior position to you and you have a sense of protection for that person. You guard them. What is that referring to? Well, I think there's a sinful part of us that wants to tear down those who are in authority over us. Have you ever sensed this? It's like there's something about those in authority over us. We, we tend to maybe want them down below us. We just want to put our foot on their neck. I don't know. There's something about it that's, that's in our nature or sin nature that wants that. It may be a rebellion against God ultimately because he, gives, he puts all authority in place. So the idea here is guard your master, your boss, your leader, not immorally, not protect them from their own sins, and not, not, not like that, not immorally guard them. But, but here's a question. How do I talk about them behind their back? That's actually a really big deal, how I talk about leaders behind their back. Um, not a blind sense of loyalty, but a sense of respecting the, the role and the position they're in and realizing that there, there, is a, there is a guarding that's needed because, of course, they're going to be under attack. And I don't want to be the one providing the attack. And I know I've been tempted to do that in the past. And it's a good wisdom and good, good counsel for us to remind ourselves that we want to try to guard them. And it says they'll be honored. Some of us seek to lift ourselves up by tearing them down. Instead, we realize that we're part of a team. We're part of a team. Like as a church, for instance, we're part of a group, a, a team. We work together to serve the Lord. We don't want to put people on pillars, but we also don't want to tear them down. Verse 19. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. The heart of man reflects the man. Now imagine if you rarely saw a mirror, or, or you couldn't pull your phone out and just look at yourself with the camera to inspect, you know, make sure everything's still there. You know, imagine you couldn't do that. That moment when you got in front of flat water would be like deeply insightful. So that's what I'm looking like, you know? You, you would be seeing yourself for the first time in a while, you know, as you look into that water. And so... Water reflect, face reflects face in water, so the heart of man reflects man. I think that the heart is not always on display, but like that water occasionally seen, this is occasionally it comes out. The heart comes out in these rare moments in life where someone's just, their heart gets out on their sleeve and everybody sees it for what it is. The answer is, wow, that's who you really are. Those moments when you are vulnerable and you're very open and you're very just real, that's showing you who you really are. Those are insight moments in your life. If you think about the last few times when you've like, not just that you broke down emotionally, but rather you responded with the genuineness of your, of your heart. Boom, you know, it just came out. Good or bad. That was an insight moment for you to think about and be like, I can see who I am. I can see who I am through this. But you can also see who other people are. You can watch for other people's sort of heart moments, for lack of an appropriate term here. And you can evaluate and see what kind of person they are. You know, when they go through maybe a hard time, 
maybe a great time, but somehow the heart just comes out. And you can take action according to those things. Verse 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Sheol and Abaddon, Sheol's grave, Abaddon's destruction. So it's just like no matter how many people die, the grave's never done. There's just more people are going to die. It's never satisfied. And the eyes of man or human eyes, we're never satisfied. Now this helped me a lot as a young man because I kept thinking foolishly that if I could sate my eyes by seeing this or seeing that, then I'd feel satisfied. But I found that the more you feed the flesh, the bigger and worse the hunger grows and it never seems satisfied. And so I applied this to my own walk, realizing that all of those temptations to sin, those I want, I want, I want, were lies. It wasn't going to satisfy. It was just going to create more of a craving and more of a hunger. Want, desire is never satisfied. Desire grows, satisfaction diminishes. That's the nature of sin. Godliness seems to be a whole different path, right? It's not like that at all. Satisfaction increases, but here it seems it decreases. An unending thirst for sin. So the application is, you simply have to say no to your own desires. You're never going to be satisfied. So start saying no. We look at this post-cross and we say, take up your cross, die to yourself, follow Jesus. That's the application. Lest your eyes, your wants, your desires be the death of you. Because you keep trying to satisfy them and it never will. It'll just ruin you. All right, we're going to speed through here and get through the rest of this. Verse 21 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. Hmm, okay, crucibles and furnaces, we're, we're talking about when you get metal and you boil it up and all the muck comes out, all the impurities rise to the surface and they can like skim off the impurities, so they're purifying that metal. Well, they're saying that, that praise to a person does this. Now, this isn't praise like when we're standing in church and we're praising God. It's speaking about his praise or when people are praising him. So it's when someone else speaks very highly of you, it reveals something about you. How is that? Well, how you respond reveals a lot about you. Certain situations show us, cause us to show ourselves, and pain is one of those situations, but so also is praise. Praise reveals things about you, and you can use this in evaluating yourself and evaluating others in a godly fashion. I know... Um, that we sometimes work really hard on things and nobody notices. And that can be discouraging. And sometimes you work really hard on things and everybody notices. And then they're all talking about it. And they're telling you about it. And they're like, man, such a good job on that. You did so great. That was amazing. And do you feel it within yourself that you're now conflicted with some kind of weird spiritual test? That's what this is talking about. How I respond, do I stay humble and godly or do I, do I have like a puffed up head, which is, you know, comes before destruction, right? And before the fall, the, these things are coming that, you know, this is a testing moment for you. How I handle praise is an actual moral test in my life. Uh, be aware of that. Verse 22, crush a fool, crush a fool in a mortar with pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Mortar and pestle, we're talking about like that little stone bowl and you put like grain or something in there and you have like that little, little rock tool that you, you grind it all in there. That's the mortar and pestle. 
And they're like, you could put a fool in there with your crushed grain. You could grind him up to dust and you can't separate him from his folly. Now, it's not suggesting we do this to people. Literally, no. Uh, not at all. What it's saying is his, the fool's folly, which would be uh, the person's the fool. The folly is the dumb thing they keep doing. The dumb behavior, the foolish behavior they keep doing over and over and over again. What they're saying is there's nothing you outside the fool can do to force the fool to stop doing it. This is good advice for us all to know. People who are committed to folly can't be stopped by anyone, by any measure. You get the decision to choose your, to control your own life. You get free will, so do they. And if they're that committed to their folly, there's no magic trick you can do. There's no number of times you can save them from the thing they're doing. There's no amount of work you can put in that will make them change. Now, here's the flip side. You have your own folly too. And you might be waiting for the world around you to change, to, to make you stop committing some sin or some issue. And my encouragement to you is, no outside mortal, mortar and pestle is going to drive out all of your folly from you. It's going to be a decision to die to yourself and to follow Jesus. It puts, it, it puts the responsibility squarely in our lap for the life we live. And there's no blame to put anywhere else. Ultimately, the fool's folly, the dumb thing that you keep doing, nothing will stop it except you. But I just don't think I've hit rock bottom yet. Well, rock bottom is wherever you stop going down. Then you look back and you go, I guess that was my rock bottom. But it's not just this thing that happens to you where you have no choice to make. Verse 23, we're going to read all the way through verse 27 because this is one section here. And it says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountain is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the maintenance of your girls, for your girls. So this, I think the application is real simple. You, you know, here's the picture in the end of this uh, section in Proverbs 27 is a person who has a lot of wealth. They've got riches, but they're not... They're, they're tempted to not do the normal daily labors that would help them for the distant future. They want to maybe sit on the riches they've already got. So they're not thinking forward. So don't, the application is don't look at what's in the bank. Look at what's coming in the future. Be fiscally forward thinking. It's a real simple application is that you're thinking beyond the moment. Well, I'm doing good right now. I can just relax. I can, I can take some time off and I can do whatever I want. Um, that can be potentially dangerous because sometimes the stuff that you think will last doesn't last. And then you realize that, especially in that culture, right? When did you have to start farming in order to reap a harvest months down the road, right? You just start way ahead of time. When did you have to start first feeding and taking care of this flock before you're starting to get their milk? It was way ahead of time. So we want to be investing in things in our lives today that be benefit us in the long term. We're not living that sort of moment to moment, without thinking about the future. That's the idea. Now, I want to marry this with the words of Jesus a little bit, because Jesus also told us not to worry about tomorrow. And here, Proverbs seems to be telling us, worry about tomorrow, right? In Proverbs 27, we're getting this a lot. Worry about tomorrow. Except it's not the same thing as worry about tomorrow. Jesus isn't saying, don't prepare for the future. He's saying, don't agonize about things you don't know. 
Proverbs is saying prepare for the future. At the same time, it says don't boast about the future because you don't know what's going to happen. So it's in agreement with Jesus here. I don't want to worry about the future, but that doesn't mean don't prepare for it. That doesn't mean don't be ready for it. Don't be thinking about the fact that you need to have a retirement one day. That you need to be ready for the windfall of hardship that may be coming, you know, your direction, will be coming your direction eventually. That's just the reality of life. So biblical decision making here in the book of Proverbs is to see yourself in God's vision, get God's vision on the situation. Am I seeing this with God in the picture? Ask yourself a moral evaluation of your situation. Ask yourself a pragmatic evaluation of your situation. And then to be able to walk in wisdom and seek to know what your responsibility is and follow God, asking, is it wise? I think whatever you're doing, it's good as a Christian to say, is this wise? Is what I'm doing wise? Is this way of life wise? If I keep living this way in 10 years, will I be like, what on earth was I thinking? If your answer is, yes, I will, then change. Use some biblical wisdom here and make some alter, alterations in your life. This should give us clarity and direction. I encourage you guys to be reading the book of Proverbs. Um, there's so much more than I could cover. I think the application of these scriptures is so varied and it hits our lives in so many different ways that it's just our job to sort of store up this wisdom in our minds and hearts and let the Lord bring it back to us when we need it at those different crucial moments. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. The book of Proverbs is a life changing book constantly, Lord, but it changes our lives in ways that um, maybe sometimes don't feel super exciting as we're learning the wisdom, but isn't that the nature of, of learning? We, uh, we learn it, we store it up, we learn it simply by faith, knowing that your wisdom is so essential for us, and then those moments come where that clarity changed our lives. And we pray for that now, Lord. We pray for wisdom, wisdom in our trials, and wisdom in the, uh, in the good situations, the, th- the plenty. We pray for wisdom that we make right and good decisions, Lord, that we would make your name great in this world as people look and they see a godly and wise people. In Jesus' name, amen.